0: Hi and welcome to the Extra Serving Podcast, an award-winning production of Nation's Restaurant News. I am your host, Holly Petri. This week we're going to be discussing Subway's potential bidders, catering, and women in food service. Subway has a list of potential bidders, including Goldman Sachs and Bain Capital. Who are these players and what could they have in store for the largest chain in the US? Plus, what is going on with catering? Everyone from Sweetgreen to Cracker Barrel seems to be introducing catering programs and they are wildly successful. Is there a return to office? Are people having more parties? We are going to talk about it. And finally, we're discussing women in food service. From new programs for women in the workforce to restaurant concepts highlighting women, this Women's History Month seems to be full of people honoring women, but will it stick? This week's guest is Charlie Morrison, CEO of Salad & Go. And now it's time to introduce my co-host.
1: I'm Sam Okus, editor-in-chief of Nations Restaurant News.
2: Leanne Zitzmeister, managing editor
0: of Nation's Restaurant News. Well, welcome guys. It's been another week.
1: I feel like I just wanted to say the word bitters made it sound like Subway was launching cocktails or something. I'm like, bitters? <gasps> Subway's bitters. That sounds way more interesting.
2: That. I might I actually know. go to a Subway if they launch cocktails.
1: Subway cocktails. Hmm. That'd be cool. Three
0: ideas, Subway. There we go. One with pickle juice for sure. I feel like that's like a Go to us. Come on, Subway and pickle juice. I feel like that should be a a no brainer.
1: Well, it's like a free ingredient. They just get it out of their tub that they hold their pickles in, right? Like just like right. dump a little bit into their cocktail.
0: Leanne oh. and I went to a class for a cocktail making once, and they made drinks with avocados. So I feel like Subway could also make an avocado drink. True. It's true. Those were good. They were really good. So I feel like you know we're we're just ideating all these things for Subway Bitters. That Mixologist. could be their branding. Subway mm-hmm. Bitters. A bidder should bid on Subway and then introduce bidders. There you go. I mean, I feel like Goldman Sachs would easily do that. I feel like I could see that. They're like a... That's their thing. They're like a she-she kind of thing. I just feel like I could see them doing like, here's Subway, bring in some alcohol. <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> you want to set up the story, Holly?
0: <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> really just know, got- her- we're just di- we're just diving right in because you brought up the bidders.
1: It was a free segue. Come on.
0: <laughs> um, so Subway has announced that it's up for sale or potentially up for sale, we'll say, because they still haven't said that they are definitely up for sale, um, which is a little confusing. But there are some bidders on Subway, um, and they are Goldman Sachs and Bain Capital in a report that came out um, earlier this week. So, I mean, who are these people? What do you guys think about them? What do you think that it has in store for the future of Subway? Uh,
1: well, to be clear, Subway has said something about, I mean, they have said that they're exploring. They've not said, we definitely want to sell the company. They've just said, we're exploring it. So, you know, so there is at least truth to all this. It's not all speculation. I without
0: what you will, yeah.
1: Right, right, right. Um, and there's a couple others uh, besides Bank Capital, Goldman Sachs, we have TDR Capital and TBG. All of these groups, by the way, have extensive experience in um, in owning food service companies. So nothing too unusual here outside of these are some really large uh, organizations taking a look at subway kicking the tires by necessity. They're looking at a $10 billion valuation that is not uh, an easy that's nothing to sniff at, or nothing to sneeze at. What's that? Whatever that phrase is. Anyway, point I is, it's a it's, uh, sure, yeah. Whatever idiom fits here, put it there. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I think the the significance of this is, I think that these organizations probably see in Subway a ton of potential. Right? We're talking about a company that has thirty seven thousand locations globally, um, a very entrenched brand uh, all over the world. Um, It's an icon. It's been around forever. It's got a network of many thousands of franchisees, and it's not had a very good decade or so, Um, especially the last five years have not been great for Subway. So when you compare just the potential of Subway with the sort of reality of subway subway there's there's a a mismatch there and so i'm sure that the potential suitors uh for subway are very interested in fulfilling that potential because if you if you get in there and you and you really try to figure out okay how do you how do you tweak this company so that franchisees are happier because that's something they've struggled with. Franchisees are, um, not the, it's been a tenuous relationship, franchisee to franchise, or how do you, um, how do you take this brand that is really known for value and get more profit out of it? You know, um, how do you make it more exciting? How do you make it more of the moment and modern, all of these things, subway just has a ton of potential. And so, um, and so I'm sure that's what these companies, these organizations are looking at. Of course, Also, they all wanna make money. So this is also one of those potential situations where it's like, let's acquire Subway for $10 billion. Let's turn it into a, I don't know, five to 10 year project on improving all these things. And then let's sell it for $50 billion or whatever those guys do. I mean, that's just, this is, this is their model. This is their business model. So, um, so uh, yeah, I guess I should just say, you know, no surprises, no like Darden's. We all were wondering, like, is there going to be another food service group that swoops in and picks up Subway? I don't think you're going to see any of that happening. You're going to see one of these equity groups with just a ton of cash money come in, fix her up, spin it off. And that's just kind of the way things go.
2: I'm excited to see what that looks like, because it's not like Subway has been just, like, sitting back and not making an effort here. Um, They, in the last couple of years, have totally relaunched their menu line. Um, Just this week or last week, they opened a second headquarters in Miami, um, and it looks pretty cool. We've got a bunch of pictures of it on the website. Uh, So it's not like they've just been sitting back, like, waiting for someone to come in and take over and make them interesting. Uh, so I am curious what one of these, because I agree with your assessment, Sam, I'm curious to see what one of these companies will do to further push the limits of, you know, what Subway can be and, uh, really reach its potential and hopefully, you know, grab the attention of the consumer.
1: In other news, I'm really interested in, um, opening up Nation's Restaurant News 2nd headquarters in Miami as well.
0: (laughs) I'm thoroughly looking (laughs) I think y'all are, yeah. I think, I think we, we would all agree with that. Um, I'm curious to see what, I mean, because usually when there's a when there's a sale, there's usually a new CEO installed. I mean, not to say that Subway CEO is on the way out, but um, just saying, usually when things like this happen, there is a new regime put in charge. Um, usually somebody who is a little bit closer aligned with the brand values of the people that purchased the company. Um, and so I think that that could be really interesting for Subway as well, to see somebody new in charge with a Maybe something similar to Potbelly, who had this five-pillar strategy when, when um their CEO walked in and in two years has turned everything around. So, I mean, it could be that there's this new person in charge who is able to say, I have this strategy, or it could be their current CEO who says, who needs this infusion of cash to say, I officially have a new strategy. I'm I'd be curious to see what that is.
2: That's an interesting point because until 2018, um, the leader at Subway was Suzanne Greco, who was the sister of the founder. So Subway was really a family business until you know five years ago. Um, and I mean, I think John chai has been doing a great job in the role. Like I said, he's introduced all those changes that we were just talking about. Uh, but that is an interesting point that it would be interesting to watch and see because I think in the past few years, leadership at Subway has been sort of stepping in to fill the role of like, it feels like it would be intimidating to take over a family business of that scale. Um, And that, you know, the family probably still had strong like feelings or opinions on it. So it'll be interesting to see what the next step is in terms of leadership at the company.
1: And it's interesting though, because Jitsi has made a lot of changes, right? I mean, the regime of the past five years has really, you know, shaken things up. I mean, they did a whole menu revamp, you know, Subway, which was so focused on customization, switched over to, um, you know, uh, more of a um, a different menu model where you could order numbered uh, items. You know, they've done a lot to try to get this brand up to modern standards, and it just hasn't worked. And there's a number of reasons for that, right? I mean, for starters, just look at the sandwich competition. There's just so many more brands out there than there used to be. I mean, Subway owned this market about you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now when you have Jersey Mike's and firehouse subs, obviously Jimmy John's, I mean, these are some major, major players that have staked their claim in high quality sandwiches, whereas Subway's always been a value player. Um, And so they're trying to get it up to speed with those brands and it it just hasn't really worked. And so, um, so, and and Chidsey is also kind of your, quintessential corporate guy coming in and changing things up, right? He was a Burger King, uh, veteran. Um, and so if it doesn't work there, I'm just curious to see what will work. Right. And, and the reason why for 50 years, Fred DeLuca was able to make this thing work is I think because of it was a family organization. Right. I mean, there's something very sterile about, you know, a big equity group coming in, buying, putting in generic, uh, you know, CEO, um, you there's something that has to resonate at the personal level to franchisees, existing franchisees and potential franchisees. There has something that has to resonate at the customer level with creativity and quality. And so these are not easy things to get right and not just anybody can do it. So it will be interesting to see see what what will come once Subway is acquired.
0: There's just a lot of question marks. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how everything lands, how... What exactly happens? Will it be somebody who has more restaurants who acquire Subway or will it be somebody who has less restaurants? And this is just a big infusion of cash. And I'd be curious to see, Sam, what you were talking about, how they're going to grow this company to be maybe $50 billion, for example, and try to sell it. Like, what are the players that are going to be there to to buy a $50 billion company? Like, you're narrowing down and narrowing down this, this funnel. And I just feel like I'm curious to see really what's gonna happen now, what's gonna happen over the next few years with Subway, because I feel like it's gonna be something that we all really wanna watch.
1: The last thing I'll say too about all this is, you know, the the first thing that has to happen is make sure Subway doesn't become Quiznos. I mean, Quiznos got to 5,000 locations and Quiznos is now under 200 locations. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them was, I don't, you know, it could not maintain its relevance. And was just a a series of lots of mismanagement and just all kinds of reasons. But Subway has been um, backsliding significantly for years. Now, one could argue they were way too saturated all over the place. I mean, they hit a peak of like 28,000 locations or something. Um, But they've got to stop the bleeding first and foremost and just, again, reestablish Subway's place in the lives of its loyal customers. Uh, But, yeah, I don't – you know, where it goes from there, who knows? I mean, honestly, probably the best thing to do with it, if you can get it back to growth and turn it into, you know, a bigger company, just, you know, go public, Um, which it has never been.
0: Which is really interesting for a company like that.
1: Family-owned for so long, right? I mean, (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's talk about catering. I feel like it's been really in the news lately, which is curious because, I mean, we aren't back to office fully. We're only back to office one day a week, though they do try to tempt us with catering. So I feel like maybe that is happening all across the board. I was Um, going to say, every time we go to the office, there's some sort of catering involved. So So I feel like it's a temptation, but we've seen catering pop up. Um, Ron Ruggles just did a great feature for our magazine on catering. Um, in the uh, casual dining space. So definitely turn to our website to read that. Um, We also have seen companies talking about it in their quarterly earnings report. Cracker Barrel talked about it and how it's increasing in revenue. Sweetgreen talked about how it's increasing in revenue. Um, So, I mean, we're seeing this giant leap in catering. I mean, Sweetgreen and Cracker Barrel just introduced catering. Smashburger introduced it in 2022. Um, So we're seeing these companies start catering at a time when you would think that catering wouldn't really be in the cards because at least people that I know aren't really back to the office and aren't really having parties and aren't doing those things that are big gatherings. I mean, so what are you guys thinking about this? Is it a return to office? Is it, I mean, where is this catering money coming from and why are people investing so heavily in it?
1: I mean, it's a, it's a. I think for a lot of companies just untapped potential, right? I mean, a lot of companies are just trying to diversify the revenue streams um, and catering is technically off-premises service. Off-premises has been the name of the game for years. And so if you've already you know, explored delivery and if you already explored takeout and drive-through potentially, I mean, catering is, is just a natural extension of all of that. Because if you have a robust off-premises business, then you've got you know a general idea of um you know the packaging required to do catering you've got a general idea of the, the you know the service it requires the fact that I mean, catering is essentially a whole separate business for a lot of these companies um and depending on the company you know can be extremely um lucrative um and so so yeah i mean I, so it, it's just one of those things where if you if you've tapped out everything else catering's just there now remember catering just basically disappeared for at least a year Catering was just completely non-existent for most companies. So it's, it's making a comeback still, it's climbing back to relevance. The casual brands, as you mentioned, Ron wrote that great story for our March issue, the casual brands, especially, um, you know, all of a sudden they've got some off-premises experience that they didn't have before the pandemic. And so catering just makes a lot of sense for them. I mean, to answer your question more specifically, Holly, I do think, you know, work uh, offices are, are filling up again. you know, we're probably a year past the point which it was trendy to say, "Oh, life is getting back to normal. We've been back to normal for about a year now, but yeah, I mean, it's like, oh yeah, normalcy included events and parties and graduations and all kinds of things, and catering's always been a great opportunity. I think prim- I think probably why catering is, is hot right now is just it is sort of a last frontier for some of these companies in the off-premises realm. There's a ton of potential once again, and, um, and it just it just makes a lot of sense.
2: We're also seeing I'm not saying these two things are necessarily correlated, but we're also at the same time seeing a lot of companies back away from ghost kitchens specifically, which, of course, is another type of off-premises venue that uh, companies have leaned into over the last few years. And so I wonder if companies, as they pull back, as they find that that isn't working for them anymore, are reinvesting the money in a different off-premises program rather than, you know, investing it in the on-premises experience. Um, Again, I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but I don't think it's that unusual to see trends in terms of people, companies moving towards and away from different things. Um, And this could just be a case where like, well, people aren't ordering from the apps as much anymore. So they're not finding your ghost kitchen, Um, but they are, you know, maybe not having full on parties, but I mean, I. I, like I went to a Super Bowl party, for example, and it wasn't catered, but I think there were probably a lot more catered Super Bowl parties this year than in years past. And so that's you know, it's not like huge societal shifts, but enough of these little changes here and there that result in these sorts of trends in the industry.
1: yeah, and I mean catering like while we while we necessarily I mean we we jump to, oh, offices. You know, I we've done catering for small family gatherings, right? Like it just yeah. it, instead of going through every single person in our family and saying, "What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want?" You know, just get a big bulk, you know, order and <laughs> and you're off and running. So, um, yeah, more of that is happening now, and 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 I, and I do think there has been a lot of innovation to the catering space to that end. I know the one thing, um, one story that was. Um, we published this week was in and out in their you know food truck they're adding french fries i think um their food trucks being their catering extension um, that that's only interesting because in and out doesn't make news ever right so like that's <laughs> you know, they, they're adding fries instead of chips that's the story but it's just it's in and out therefore it is important but i think the point you know i make in this is to say like you think about like in and out has it's a food truck that is, is catering right now food trucks you know, we're hot 10 years ago, but like you didn't think I'm going to do catering through a food truck. Now, again, you have food trucks, you know, ghost kitchens, if if you want to do that, I mean, there are any number of things that ways in which you can innovate a catering program. Um, So you can think outside the box with what it it used to be. And I think to that end, restaurants are looking at how do we fit this into our, you know, model without it being a very traditional cater to the office kind of operation.
0: When I was talking with somebody uh, in California who read the in and out story and they were saying that you know when you see the in and out truck on your street for a party, like it's a big thing out there. Like it is known, it's exciting. like you want to go to the truck. It's like it's a thing out in California to see the in and out catering truck. So I mean it's it's something to be said for in and out that they've that they have this program that they've had since nineteen seventy four. And that they've really been able to kind of corner the market over there. I'd be curious to see if other brands are interested in catering trucks because it, I I mean, it's really worked for In-N-Out and I feel like it works really well in suburban markets where you can go park on a street, say, come up and do that. Because I know a lot of people who have food trucks at parties and it's like the coolest thing when it happens.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's got to be kind of a big party because for a whole food truck to come, you know, you've got to kind of, you've got to obviously clear a food and beverage minimum essentially, but yeah, I mean, and by the way, good marketing too. I mean, if you cater an event now in and out probably doesn't need any marketing, but you know, if you're a more of an obscure restaurant company with a handful of locations, your food truck, uh, is a billboard to your restaurant and f- talking food truck specifically you know nobody wants to put themselves inside a food truck for 16 hours a day to try to eke out a few dollars but if you can afford a food truck to just do your catering right then that makes a lot more sense you have a lot more flexibility to just send it out to to certain things so that's that's food truck specifically but i do think like catering <clears throat> even in offices and other events again it is it is a very good extension of your brand where you're getting the name out there maybe you drop a few coupons in the bags um, put the, you know, to be put out on tables so people can grab a, oh, I've never heard of this company. Now I know all about it. The food's delicious. I'm going to take this coupon and go, you know, get a discounted meal or something like that. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a, a very smart thing to do, especially now that you are, have probably already tapped into all the other off-premises channels.
0: Yeah. That's like when we get bagels, like we know it's from the good bagel shop and we like <laughs> use this. <laughs> We're like, are these the bagels from the good bagel shop? And we'll like specifically eat them if they are, but if they're not, we will, we will not eat them. Sometimes we will if we're really desperate. Brutal. But... The whispers go through the office it's pretty <laughs> fast. <laughs> but going back to Leanne's point about ghost kitchens um, is that a lot of these big companies are divesting from ghost kitchens while a lot of um, newer upcoming companies are investing in them. And so I think that it's interesting to see that, that kind of dynamic from these large companies that they just didn't want to put them. I think they didn't want to put the marketing dollars into it to really boost it where it needed to go. But like... Joanna Fantosi wrote this really great article for Tech Tracker about this new company that's trying to use chefs' recipes from across the country and basically give them royalties when this meal is cooked in ghost kitchens. And like that's something that's really popping up, that like they really want to plan to expand to the U.S. in big numbers, and um, it's something that's still in the beta phase. But I thought that was really interesting that smaller companies, and we had local Kitchen COO on last week, that these smaller companies are really... Investing in ghost kitchens, investing in food halls, investing in these things that are that these bigger companies are saying we're done.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Wendy's obviously being the, the prime example there that, you know, Wendy's had previously announced this huge relationship with Reef. And now they're they're basically totally backing out of it. You know, some of that might be there have been a lot of yeah, there has been some controversy around Reef and its, you know, um, operating model and and food safety regulations and what have you um but also yeah i mean when you're wendy's that seemed like a misfit from the jump because i think they were talking about using reef to expand into more urban locations but it's like here you have this company that's so good at brick and mortar expansion and has such a huge footprint um but has very high standards you know it, it it just it doesn't feel like a good it didn't feel like a good fit from the jump whereas if you're a, a small emerging brand and expand you can't afford the brick and mortar in another market or you can't afford to risk trying to open in a new market with brick and mortar when that's a you know potentially half million million dollar investment and so that's why ghost kitchens made a lot of sense so um so yeah i think i think that's what's going on there but you're right that the big brands are, are saying you know what like ghost kitchens maybe not for us it was kind of trendy for a little bit but that doesn't mean that that's the end of ghost kitchens and again looping this back around to catering ghost kitchens um, can serve multiple purposes, right? Because to some degree, you can see it as a commissary. You know, I mean, you can have a ghost kitchen that is just essentially food prep for catering and delivery, and you know, I, I think that's what a lot of that's what a lot of these brands are doing. Or you can make it into a food hall, which some are doing, right? So we're still figuring out what the end of ghost kitchens is going to be. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think it is still have a lot of potential for various off premises channels, including catering.
0: All right, well, it's time for the ladies. Yeah. All right, ladies. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> ah, nice try. <laughs> nice try. You have to talk about this. It's like hey, you don't even,
2: didn't even listen to me talking about this in a meeting this morning already.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, happy belated International Women's Day, guys.
0: Yeah, you didn't wow. really with us Wow, yesterday.
1: your faces. If our <laughs> listeners could see your faces after I said that, yikes.
0: I'm sure they're gonna imagine. mute myself. I'm sure they're making the same faces themselves. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, all brutal, right. brutal Please, man. That was taken we away. At service forum last year, and you were like walking around as like the happy man, and it's like all women there, and we were all like, "Shame on you." <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, I like to think I know my place. I'm not a big man or anything like that. I cede the floor to you guys. I'm not gonna, you know, whatever.
0: All right, so women in food service. uh, People have been talking about this for a while. We kind of started with the Me Too movement. There's been a big movement towards gender parity and pay parity. Um, So, I mean, it's been across the industry for a while. Some companies like Starbucks have reached their goals um, when it comes to gender parity and pay parity. Um, Starbucks, I believe, reached their gender parity goal in 2018. Um, I may be wrong on that, but I'm like 90% sure that's right. Um, didn't look it up before I came in here. I was just flying off the seat of my pants. Um, <laughs> against Lance.
1: we do our research over here. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I know. Cause it just, came, it just came to me in the moment. I was like, Alicia, I'm pretty sure told me that. So, um, on our episode of first bite, go and listen to it. If you want the true facts. Um, so <laughs> you won't fight it
1: here. <laughs> we don't believe in facts on extra serving.
0: No, we don't. Not at all. <laughs> Um, so those companies have been reaching, these bigger companies have been reaching their goals, but there's also smaller initiatives that are happening. Um, Trust Bay is a new restaurant in New York City. That's, (laughs) I saw Leanne laugh and made me laugh too. (laughs) Um, it's called Trust Bay and it's this, uh, new restaurant that's looking to highlight female chefs, uh, in New York City. There's programs that have been coming out that are highlighting women that are helping women, uh, There is Rohini Days organization that's here to help women. I mean, there's just all of these organizations that are here for this International Women's Month, but are they here for good? Are they here to actually, like will this make a difference in the industry where we see mostly men in power? (laughs) I don't (laughs) don't want to talk first,
1: Leanne. I'm waiting for you to talk. Jeez, I feel like I'm walking on (laughs) eggshells over here. Yikes. (laughs)
2: okay listen i think these programs are great i think women empowerment is great i am so sick of always talking about it the first week of march and then not again for 51 more weeks um so with that said and i said something similar on a team call this morning um which sam was on and that's the I am really pushing for us to talk about this more. And so like, yes, I'm in favor of this, but I want to um, keep track of these things throughout the year. I want to see how these things go. And I'm not just saying I want to do this, like we have set up at NRN a page just for this um, content. We've got editors who are specifically following up on things like this. and so I'm excited about the buzz around these programs and these restaurants, and I just really, really hope that it's not um, a flash in the pan because, oh, shoot, it's International Women's Day. We better uh, find some women <laughs> to come on a PR <laughs> release and <laughs> go about our business for the rest of the year. Anyway, um, so anyway, that's my, I mean, that's my, you know, cynical viewpoint. You guys know me, and I think our listeners do by now, too. <laughs> um <laughs> that's that's yeah my thought
1: (laughs) I mean look we we laugh about it but yeah I, I I mean the the deal with all of this is that there is talking points and there's action and um we've been talking about gender parity issues forever I mean obviously since you know women in the workplace became a real issue in <clears throat> back to the 70s i assume we've been talking about it since then but in the last 10 years i think in the restaurant industry anyway we've been really identifying it as as there's a real problem and so we talk about that problem a lot but what we're trying to accomplish at nrn and doing so again to leanne's point with content throughout the year and not just around international women's day is to identify the myriad problems with gender parity today and talk about solutions and those um, companies that are doing a very good job with this, because we can't I mean, it's, you know, to compare it to DEI, um, you know, around George Floyd in 2020, of course, there's lots of uh, attention to, you know, diversity and, and culture and all these things. But that was sort of around this event and just after, you know, we still talk about DEI today, but every company around then felt like they had to say something and they talked about what they would do, but there's, then there's no accountability. And, and, you know, not, that's not for everybody. Of course, you know, some companies are are really holding their own, but it's the same with gender parity, which is, yeah, of course. in these days you talk about wanting gender parity, women in leadership positions, but are you doing anything about it? What is the actual action here? Are you walking the walk? And so, yeah, we are, we are um, doing this women in food service series throughout this year to hold the industry accountable and to say, don't just talk about it, take some actionable steps to do something about it. And it's amazing. Alicia Kelso, who wrote our February cover story about this issue, she has outlined so many individual issues under, you know, sort of subheadlines. you know, under this one big headline, um, that are are all. It's like a to do list here of what the industry has got to do. You know, from you know, pay and making sure that pay is equal among men and women. Making sure there are more women in the C suite. Uh, Childcare. I mean, you know, the the various barriers to women holding leadership positions in the restaurant industry. It's amazing. It's 2023, and some of these things still exist. So that's what we're, we are doing this year. Um, and you know, for those who are listening, who, you know, have, have talked the talk or even, haven't even started that conversation, you know, don't blow this off as just a talking point or just a, one of those things that, you know, the industry has to do to appear, you know, progressive or whatever. The the fact of the matter is, is like, there is real, Return on the investment in women in leadership positions, right? That This is actually good for your company. And and even if you don't say a thing about it, you know, in your marketing or, you know, say, hey, look at all the achievements we're doing, just do something about it because it will ultimately benefit your brand. And we will continue to provide that information throughout the year. And we'll throw in the show notes the link to our Women in Food Service content so that you can have that resource throughout the year to know what are the top brands doing? What are the leaders in this industry? How can you emulate what they're doing?
0: Yeah. And you know, it's not that hard to say, let's just include more women. I mean, if you look at our create panels throughout the year and our create program, we include lots of women. It's not hard to find them in the industry. It's not, they're there. Like women are there in the industry. They're not where they should be, but it's not hard to, to highlight women and say, let's bring you on this panel. Let's bring you to this. Let's show that, It's possible for women to be in a position of power and to still have childcare and to make these mental health benefits at companies, because women are typically focused on more mental health benefits, at least the women that I've interviewed, typically at their businesses are more focused on childcare and mental health, and the overall well being of their staff, that's not to generalized, but the women that I've spoken to at least recently have really been focused on that. Um, And so I think that it's interesting to see how these women operate and to hear from them and to inspire more women to want to reach these levels. And we try very hard here to focus on covering all people. And I think that that's a really important thing to think about as you go forward as a journalist or as you go forward as a company and to just say, we want to focus on bringing everybody to to the front to the top. We want to grow people from within. We want to grow them from outside. We want people to really feel that there is opportunity here. And I think that there's opportunity for women in the industry. And I just think that the industry needs to open up its eyes and see that.
1: There's a level of intent required because um, to your point, Holly, there are women all around to, you know, fill a speaking role at an event or, um, you know, to hire for a position. But, but again, it's, it's, it's that intent to say, you know, that we are going to include for create when we, you know, bring speakers on, if we just said, oh, we're going to hire the best speakers. And, you know, of course, some of them will be women. Unfortunately, the fact of the matter is with 90% of leaders in this industry being male or whatever the number is, uh, it's probably around there. um, That's actually, that's, that's not a, a safe bet, you know? because there's just way more men at, you know, out there. So you have to have some level of intent to make a difference and to make change. You can't just talk the talk and assume everything will follow. You have to go out there and say, I'm going to intentionally find strong female leaders to fill this position, um, not because it's the right thing to do and it's a talking point, because, but because the talent is there, That, but that it's just likely that it's harder to find because that woman has been superseded by several male counterparts. So that's what our our encouragement is just to say, you know, again, don't make this a talking point, have some intent in the actions you take to make change because without that action, without that intent, nothing is gonna happen. And we'll all just be talking about this 10 years from now.
2: And give me a reason to be less cynical. Like give us <laughs> give something to talk about in July. You know, Good luck. July. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, <laughs> two
1: years I've been working with Leanne, and I can't find anything to make her less cynical. I don't know,
0: but I appreciate I will that say you keep trying. <laughs> Leanne's last piece of cynicism: Starbucks did achieve gender parity in 2018, so I was right with that number. <laughs> just, so she can't just be cynical just,
1: toward and, Holly's fact checking.
2: And, and Starbucks has done nothing to piss me off since. So <laughs> 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 not a single thing. Famously, Famously, I you can't cut this out never
0: <laughs> all right guys well um it's been lovely truly i feel like we had some good conversations i really do. It, it.
1: it was just a very funny pause because you said it's been lovely and, and Leanne and i were like sure. has it <laughs> Yeah, I
0: have a great time.
1: So long um, as you're having fun.
0: So so long as I'm having fun, that's really all that matters. Ever, I mean, is is really my bottom line. Um, so thank you guys for joining me, and I'm going to throw it over to Ron in his interview with Charlie Morrison. But thank you guys so much for joining me. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly.
1: Tell us it.
3: how long you've been with uh, Salad and Go, and kind of where you see it going for the rest of this year.
4: Sure, uh, and appreciate the time today. I uh, I've been here now eight months, and uh, we're having fun, and we're just getting started. But over that last eight months, we have been continuing to prepare this business for scaled growth, uh, not only here in Texas where I reside and certainly in Phoenix where the brand was founded, but throughout other parts of the country, we just opened our first location in Las Vegas yesterday. Um, Our plans for the coming year include continued expansion up in Oklahoma where we have four stores today and we'll continue to expand into the Oklahoma City market up into Tulsa. And then uh, throughout Texas as well. So our next stop is Houston where we have a number of sites under construction Many of those will start opening up probably in the next uh, two months.
3: Uh, so it's three states, well, actually four states now with Nevada, four states.
4: Correct. That's correct.
3: And where do you see the rest of the year going as far as expansion, infill in those areas or new markets?
4: Yeah, we've we've only reached about thirty stores in the DFW Metroplex, so we expect to con- a lot of new stores still in DFW. Uh, Houston will become a stronger point for us and we'll probably be somewhere 10 to 15 stores there uh, before the end of the year. As I mentioned, Oklahoma still represents a great market and everywhere we go, we want to have some saturation in those markets. It's good for our ability to distribute food from our large food production facilities into those markets and uh, have some scale there as well. So you'll see a lot of stores pop up very quickly in each of these new markets that we're entering. And then I think over the long term. Uh, we'll continue to fill out all of Texas. We believe Texas, Oklahoma, and and the contiguous states represent about 400 stores worth of potential for us. Uh, And then if we think about our existing experience in Arizona, we'll work our way up into Nevada. One of these days we'll be heading and venturing off into Southern California as well because we can reach those destinations from our facilities in Phoenix as well.
3: How many stores have you added since you joined the company eight months ago?
4: Oh, uh, rough numbers, about 30, 35.
3: And you're about 80, correct?
4: Just over 80. Yeah, 82, uh, as we sit here today.
3: And what's attractive about the Salad and Go concept? I've been to the one that just opened near me. It's con- no, no interior seating, all drive-through. Uh, what else about the concept do you think hits the buttons about today's market?
4: Well, it's certainly less about the location itself, aside from the fact that it provides exceptional convenience for our guests. But the real key to the success of this concept and what we believe uh, consumers and what they've told us they absolutely love about Saladigo is the affordability and the freshness and quality. Uh, matching those two things up together. I mean, everybody has a salad on their menu. There are a lot of salad concepts out there. Generally, they're too expensive. Um, and therefore they're not really positioned for every consumer in the market. And if you look at what we've been able to accomplish through a vertically integrated model, we bring all the produce straight from the farms and the growers into our food production facilities. That food is cut, fresh, clean, um, ready to go, bagged and and sent to our stores for assembling those salads to order. And so by doing that, we're able to take a ton of cost out of the equation and return that back to the guest in the form of a $6 and 24 cent salad today. We also make all of our dressings from scratch. We don't have any additives, preservatives in those. We make all of our drinks and the syrups for our lemonades, make our teas, we steep our own beans to make our cold brew coffees in these commissaries and we distribute that to the stores. We take a ton of cost out, we return it back to the consumer in a great value. So you can pick up a salad, in a in a in a mango green tea, perhaps a cucumber mint lemonade um, for six twenty four for the salad, a dollar twenty four for the drink. We think that value is better than just about anything you can get in quick service restaurants or any restaurant concept today.
3: And labor costs, you're able if you use the commissary uh, distribution method, are they lower uh, labor costs?
4: Absolutely, we centralize the expertise of production and preparation of the products into a central commissary. And so we're actually able to pay uh, skilled workers a lot more to produce that, but in high volume situations. And so the efficiencies gained from there is a big part of our model. Our stores then are all about assembly and uh, delivery to the customer and taking care of that guest. And so uh, those stores are very small. They're only 750 square feet in size. on a busy day, we might be able to get eight people total in there at high volumes, um, but we can operate as with as few as three people. So it's a la- very labor-efficient model compared to most restaurants you see out there today, especially quick service.
3: And what hours are they open?
4: Usually from 6.30 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. We have a breakfast occasion where... Again, another distinguishing factor of Salad and Go is the ability to combine breakfast and lunch together. So our guests can come through; they get a burrito or a bowl for breakfast. They can order their salad at the same time for lunch. Top it off with a cold brew uh, to uh, get the morning started. We call that uh, historically our on-the-go bundle. So you can pick up all three of those for a great price. And um, there are very few, if any, concepts out there that can offer two day parts in the same occasion or same for the same occasion.
3: What was attractive about the salad segment as compared to pizza and wings, which you've been to in the, uh, involved with in the past?
4: Well, I'll, I'll center on the wings because I think that uh, there are a lot of similarities between what what we had at Wingstop and very successful concept and what I see at Salad and Go. Notably, um, I used to always tell people, you, you yourself, that uh, wings are on everybody's menu across the country. They always have been for years in all bars and casual dining restaurants and the such. But no one had really done a good job of taking wings and making them a center of the plate item. And there wasn't a category surrounding it. There are a few players, but it's very fragmented. Um, But no true chain had emerged until Wingstop came along with it, centered solely on wings as a center of the plate item. And that specialization, that careful attention to the craft and the crave that was created there is very applicable to where we are at Saladigo. There's not a concept At scale today that serves salads as its primary or only product. There are a lot of players in the space. Um, Most are very small, very fragmented, no clear emerging concept, and certainly no one with the potential to have the kind of density of locations that we do. And I believe Salad and Go will follow a very similar path because we present an exceptional value. Our brand is, is focused on what we call for all, but we want to be uh, the player that provides fresh food that's healthy and good for you and make it affordable and that's the challenge in salads today most players their salads are 13 14 15 dollars and it's for the same product in fact i would argue ours is better um, the same amount of product uh, made with romaine and mixed greens just as others do but uh, there's just not a market for that right now that's affordable so we're we're we're, we're fixing that and uh, making salads available to all. And uh, I think that's a unique differentiation of our value proposition, but what's really similar to what I'd seen before.
3: I know I got a Cobb salad for seven bucks, which is really quite a bargain. And it's a lot of food. So congratulations on that.
4: Thank you. I appreciate it.
3: Founded in 2013, how has the concept evolved in the 10 years between today and then?
4: You know, um, aside from just scaling itself, it's pretty similar to the way it was when it first got going. Um, We still serve eight core salads on the menu, many of which are the same ones that they've been there before. Um, We've really only expanded a few product ideas. We do carry regional, excuse me, um, uh, seasonal salads on our menu. So from time to time, we'll introduce a seasonal favorite, make it a limited time offer. Um, but the brand has been able to hold true to its roots um, from the beginning. Part of that is because our chef, uh, Daniel Patino, uh, was one of the original founders. And he's a guy who worked in Michelin star restaurants. He was working for Michael Mina before they created Salad and Go. And his vision was exactly as I have articulated, which is to take really, really good food and not make it for the few, but make it for everyone. And, uh, and do, it, do it by making it affordable. And to make it affordable, we had to disrupt the way um, this business has typically been constructed, and focus a lot of our energy on um, you know scaling uh, the processing of that product and getting it ready for distribution to the stores and eliminating a lot of costs in the middle. So his vision, as it was from the beginning, is really well intact today.
3: Uh, what is the ownership behind uh, Salad and Go?
4: company is owned primarily by a small private equity group uh, called Volt Inve- Investment Holdings. Um, they are a very specialized investor in founder-led concepts um, that they love to uh, get in on the very early stages and maintain a long investment cycle and build those business up and partner with the, either the founders or management teams uh, like the one we've created to uh, grow and scale those businesses.
3: And how many commissaries do you have that service the uh, 80 stores now?
4: Today, there's one in Phoenix and one in Dallas. Those will remain. And then each new market we go to will build a new commissary and then expand the brand from there.
3: What do you think the biggest uh, prospects, positive prospects are for the brand, say in the next two to three years?
4: You and I both know that uh, the economy is going through a lot of change. There's the risk of recession, which I believe is quite likely, personally. Um, Consumers are going to be trading to uh, value-oriented choices. I think this brand is perfectly positioned because we already know we present an exceptional value, even as you described your Cobb salad. But we also do it in a high-quality fashion. So people aren't going to have to trade down and settle. For lesser quality food or food that's not good for you, we're going to be the solution uh, that presents good food at a very affordable price point. So I think the prospects for this brand, as we expand as quickly as we are, uh, are great uh, because we're going to fit right in the sweet spot of where consumers are going today.
3: How many stores did you add last year?
4: Uh, about 35. Uh, well, about 40 altogether, I guess, um, since I got there. There were a few that were built before me, but uh, about 40. So almost double.
3: You almost double the footprint. Uh, do you plan on doubling in the next year as well?
4: I think we'll get close. Um, you know, we've, we're We're making sure we're being smart in the markets that we enter and we pick the right real estate. So it is a function of making sure that it's ready and available. Uh, sometimes the construction supply chain gives us fits as it does everybody else in today's world. Uh, but barring any obstacles uh, that are thrown at us that we can't control, uh, we would expect to you know see the brand grow uh, materially in size in the coming year.
3: What is the ideal real estate for a Salad and Go unit?
4: Uh, you know, it's similar to most quick service restaurants. It's going to be featured in a trade zone where people congregate and come together. Um, We only need about 15,000 square feet of property in order to drop one of these in because the building's so small and it's purely drive-through. So we can uh, show up in a lot of places. We can be in the pad, uh, you know, a typical pad location in a large uh, anchored center. Uh, We can sneak into the parking lot of a large grocer or maybe a Home Depot or a Lowe's where they have space available to carve out uh, a spot for us. But it's going to be highly visible. In the usually uh, go to work uh, side of the road, so we're in in that uh, 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 you know we're in the consumer's mind on the way to work, so they can drop by for breakfast, that coffee, etc. So uh, you know, traditionally, what you would see in most quick service restaurants, that's where we'll show up.
3: Pandemic was very good for wings. Will the vaccine era be very good for salads? <laughs>
4: Well, the fact the pandemic was good for us as well, but I do think um, the the emerging economic challenges, as we talked about, um, and the focus that people have on high quality, clean, um, and uh, and and responsibly produced products, is going to be our sweet spot. And I think if you call that the vaccine era, I would say those are the consumers that are going to be making sure that their health is first and foremost. And I think we have a perfect solution for that.
3: What question did I not ask about Salad and Go that you'd like to answer?
4: Oh boy. Um, You covered a lot of ground, Ron. Um, Not much. Um, You know, I think one thing you will see uh, in the coming months is um, a, uh, a big awareness campaign where we're gonna tar- start really trumpeting this brand and people are gonna talk about it. So if you're in the Dallas, Fort Worth area or in Phoenix, uh, you're gonna really start to hear about this brand in a big way. And so I'm excited by that uh, because it's time to tell the world uh, about this great concept and and use that as a means to step on the gas and grow faster.
3: Well, thanks for your time today, Charlie.